Good morning. It's a joy to be able to gather together and to be with one another and to open up God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open or scroll to Ephesians uh, chapter 1. We are beginning a series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And this letter is incredible. Six chapters, but each one dive real deep into the grace and glory of God and what it means to us in our lives and how we can live them out. And so it's a real, uh, it's a real pleasure and a real delight to be able to turn to this letter and to make much of it uh, for a number of weeks. We're going to just dip our toe into it this morning and read verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians chapter 1 and kind of get a feel and a handle of this letter and where it's going. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we start out in Ephesians, as we begin this letter as we begin this incredible look into your incredible grace and our salvation and what life in Christ looks like, God, I pray that you would do a good work in us, that you would be with us each week as we explore these rich themes. We would see that not only are they big, but they are near. God, would you do a good work in us, we pray, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, most parents are going to tell you they don't have a favorite child. They're, they're going to say that, and it's true. They don't have a favorite child. If you're a parent, you know that. So when you come to Scripture, it's kind of hard to say, I have a favorite book of God's Word, when it really should be the whole totality of it, just like you would look at your family. But it's really hard not to say that about Ephesians. It's incredible. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, you probably have your Bible all marked up and highlighted when you turn the page to Ephesians. Or if you're new to Jesus and are wanting to know what the Christian faith believes about God, believes about grace, believes about salvation, then you'll want to get really familiar with Ephesians. Scholars in all years throughout the history of the church, have high regard for Ephesians, some stating that the letter is the consummate and most comprehensive statement which the New Testament contains of what it means to be a Christian. Why does this letter hit so significantly? Why does it land on our hearts in such profound ways? It's because it shows the scope of the gospel, how it reaches as high as the cosmos, and yet at the same time reaches all the way down into our lives. It's both big and yet also so near. It is supernatural, what we are going to consider in this letter, yet also so incredibly relevant. It's a letter that gives us 
the picture that everything is ultimately going to be okay. And that you and I will have all that we need in this life, no matter what it is that we face. It is enormous in its scope, and yet it is so endearing to our very hearts and lives. And so we're going to consider it together. And I hope these things happen. I hope our heads and our hearts soar. And I hope it all lands near and close to us. To begin, we started off looking at just a a pretty standard introduction. Like in Paul's day, the apostle, he's just writing a standard letter. He's starting it off in the most standard of ways. Kind of how we would write a letter. I don't know, do we write letters anymore? I mean, we don't even text anymore. We just send thumbs up or other random emojis. So our letter writing is, has really kind of fallen off on the wayside. Like, we're, we're not really writing letters. We don't leave voicemails and we don't write letters. Like, right? That's the thing. We don't want anything in the mail. But here we have a standard letter. And, and there's a grammar to it. And really, it's a gospel grammar. When we read Ephesians, we are reading the grammar of the gospel. The grammar of the gospel. And so we're going to introduce this letter and we're going to lay out the grammar of the gospel this morning. And the gospel grammar that we're going to lay out is is good news. It's, first of all, good news of Jesus Christ. It's good news in Jesus Christ. And it is good news from Jesus Christ. This letter unfolds that for us, how all of God's purposes are wrapped up in Jesus and why that's incredibly good news. And the grammar of the letter is the grammar of the gospel, and it is grammar that you and I need to know. And so let's consider that together. Gospel grammar, firstly, is good news of Jesus Christ. It is good news of Jesus Christ. There is gospel grammar and structure within this letter. The letter is six chapters, and there is a gospel-driven and gospel-shaped outline. For those of you who like to have some sort of outline in your mind, there is a real easy one to remember for this letter. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak of gospel doctrine. That is, truths about God, about Christ, about salvation, about the work of the Spirit. It's these declarative truths about who God is and what God does. These chapters, 1 through 3, that lay out gospel doctrine focus on what are called indicatives, which are just statements, declarative, foundational statements of the nature and character of God and His work in our salvation. So you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, you're not going to find like commands on how to live. It's just telling us how awesome God is. And so it's laying that out for us in those three chapters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 speak of gospel culture, the practical outworking of the gospel doctrine in our lives, in the life of a church. How does it matter in us? How does it change us? How does it shape us? How does it inform the way we live? 
How does it inform the way we're a husband or a wife or a father or a mother, whether we're in charge or we're not in charge of the places in which we work? How does it inform the way that we live in a world that is hard and difficult at times or even in opposition to the very things that we hold dear and true? And so it helps us see that, the, that there is a, a culture and a, a picture that gets shaped in our lives. These chapters 4, 5, and 6 focus on imperatives. There are a lot of command verbs, direct commands of what living in light of the gospel means for the believer. So there is a gospel-driven outline to the letter itself. And within that, there's a gospel-driven purpose. The purpose of the letter is to encourage the believer in all that God has done in our salvation and to exhort the believer to live in light of all that is received in Christ. To encourage us with the awesomeness of God in our salvation and to call us to live in light of an awesome God who saves us. That purpose is soaked throughout the entirety of this letter. One scholar named Benjamin Merkel said, the theology of Ephesians highlights the work of God through his son for the believer who then is able to love and enjoy God because of the ongoing work of the Spirit. All that's laid out in this letter. It is because believers are united to Christ that they can walk in the Spirit. So it's an incredibly relevant letter for all of us. And hopefully it will draw our hearts closer to the God who has grace for people such as us. And this grammar that we see, it highlights the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at the very beginning, opening words of this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Here we get to see who is writing the letter, and that is Paul, who is an apostle. An apostle is sent with this good news. The word apostle just simply means sent one. In their day, it had some important distinctions that qualified somebody as a, an apostle, a sent one. Typically, or broadly, it was a messenger or missionary specially called and specifically equipped with authority. We also know that they were appointed as witnesses of Christ of his miracles, of his work, of um, his death and resurrection. Or they also saw him, like Paul, after his resurrection, and their knowledge and grasp of the gospel was directly given to them from Christ. So Paul was a specially sent one, and he was sent with good news of something, and that good news was the good news of Jesus Christ. And there's some fun grammar of is a fun grammar word because there are a couple of things that are at play when you say that it is of Jesus Christ. First is of as in belonging to. The one doing the sending has the greater authority. Paul belongs to Jesus. It's not Paul of his own doing things for God. No, this is Jesus with all authority in heaven and earth sending out his messengers with his authority to speak and write the words to the church. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So it is of, as in belonging to Jesus, but it is also of, as in all about Jesus. It's also all about Jesus. This letter is highlighting all of God's purposes are wrapped up in Jesus. If you want to know the purposes of God, then you see them unfolding and culminating in Jesus. The content and character of this message, carried by this specially called and sent one, is one of Jesus Christ. Great specificity. It is Christ that Paul is about in encouraging the church. It is Christ who fulfills God's purposes. It is Christ who reveals to us the glory and grace of God in everlasting ways. And it is the heart of Paul's ministry. A very meaningful verse for me in ministry is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, also written by Paul. And he said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean that Paul didn't talk about anything else? About the character and nature of God or about the power of the Spirit or what the church is to look like? No, he did talk about all those things. He understood all of those things in light of all of those things being wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. So to Paul, Jesus is the big deal. He is the big deal that he makes much of in his life and ministry. And this letter, Ephesians, does that as well. It shows us the nature and character of God's grace in the person and work of Christ. There are so many things that compete for your head and your heart in this life, in this world. And they offer us so many things that sound good. Be careful that we don't go away with having somewhat of a spiritual buyer's remorse. That we put our hearts all in on something that cannot deliver. Ephesians is holding out to us that Christ has delivered all of God's purposes in full. And that there isn't anything else that you can find that is going to be better, greater, more glorious than this. So that is gospel grammar of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we find that it's gospel grammar is good news in Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of verse 1. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's this good news of a new identity, a new identity for people. He's describing people as, first of all, saints, which just simply means holy ones, that they're set apart. They're set apart from something and set apart to something. They're set apart from a world that would, that would like submerge them away from God and his grace. And they're set apart to a world basking in God and his grace. Separated from the world's ways and separated to God's ways living after Jesus. It's like you've been given a whole new set of values. A whole new way to look at life and live it out. A whole new identity. And this new identity is to reflect the one who rescues you. That you're rescued by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And you're rescued to life 
in Christ. And so he, he says this to a, a ragtag group of ordinary people just like you and me. I've had all kinds of life experiences. I've experienced hurt. I've done the hurting. I've ached and longed and cried out. Know the depth of our own sin, the darkness in our own hearts, the bad thoughts that we have, the bad words that we say. And yet those... They're not different than us. They just lived in a different time. And the nature and character of God's grace for them gave them a new identity. They weren't dirty, beat down nobodies that didn't like need any, like who were going to get nothing from God. They were now called saints. That's God's perspective on his people that he rescued. Saints. That new identity hits, man. It hits my heart. I know how awful I am. That God calls me that in Christ? Are you kidding me? That's good news. This is gospel grammar that our hearts need. Because we're our worst enemies. We beat ourselves up. And here we need to understand the depth of God's grace for us. Holy ones. They're also called faithful. Or another way to understand that, believing ones. It's not necessarily focused on faithful to or with something, but just simply the act of believing, being a believing one. It is the exercising of faith. It is actively believing. And what is it that they are actively believing? It is believing in Christ. It is a group of people united together in Christ. That's an important Grammar, that's important gospel grammar, especially if you read anything written by Paul. That little phrase, in Christ, is sort of a summation. It's a, it's a little pill form of a deep theology in which he is saying, like, everything about all that God's purposes are about are wrapped up in Christ, and everything that, that it would mean for you is found in Christ. You can't get or experience or know any of that outside of Christ. Everything matters if you're in Christ. So it is just his way, his short form of driving us to see this incredible gospel grammar that in Christ sums up all of his understanding of who God is and what God does and what it means for us. And so they are believing in Christ. But it is also anchored into an actual real time and place. He says to the believing ones in Ephesus. It also means for us in the Nashua region. Ephesus was a very, seemed to be a very incredible place. It was a significant port city on the west coast of Asia. It was wealthy and prosperous. It was populated and beautiful. 
It was most likely a regional circular letter that was launched out of Ephesus all in its little region, going off to little house churches all around. Some have wondered why there was a lack of personal touch, and it was especially with the fact that Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, and, and, it, and it is understandable when we realize that it's probably a letter to the whole region for their encouragement. It contains big picture stuff for us to see how awesome God is and how sufficient the gospel is. The people of Ephesus who lived there, they were primary Gentile believers. What does that mean? They, they didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. They grew up in the Greco-Roman world. They grew up in the world, if you will. And they came to know Jesus from that background. So that means they were steeped in, in practices in a culture that believed many gods and embraced all kinds of of ways of living because they believed in so many kinds of gods. In Ephesus, there was the Temple of Artemis, which at the time was considered one of the, or is considered one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. There was there in Ephesus a theater that held 20,000 people. I mean, think about that. Way back then, 20,000 people. Yesterday was Saturday, and college football is an idolatry in our nation. Hundreds of thousands of people go into theaters, if you will. And there they were, gathering around their plural gods and living in light of that. Ephesus was also kind of similar to our day. There was either the very rich or the very poor, and the middle class was disappearing. That was the context in which Paul was writing into a very pluralistic culture. Believe whatever you want to believe. Make sure you believe the stuff of Rome um, and uh, don't make any waves while having a very specific faith in Christ that is marginalized, pushed to the edges, misunderstood. So Ephesus, in our day, have a lot of similarity. Therefore, we're going to find a very similar kind of encouragement as we go through it. An encouragement that can only be found in Christ. Gospel grammar is good news of Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we find that gospel grammar is good news from Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good news of grace and peace, which is a very common way to start a letter in Paul's day. But Paul was taking a very common thing and adding a whole lot to it. A whole lot to it. Grace, we know, to be the unmerited favor of God, the source of all good. And it was a typical Greek greeting. But it also meant that grace is God at work in us right now and through us right now, enabling us to live in him and for him. Peace. Peace means general well-being and having good order. It's actually a word that was really deep in meaning from the Hebrew part of the Bible, a word that maybe you might know is shalom. Peace is the reality of God reconciling us to himself and Constantly guarding our hearts and our heads in this world. 
It's a typical greeting at the beginning of this letter, but it's loaded with meaning for us right now. Think about peace. Peace is where this all ends, where God's purposes culminate, where sin and consequences will be no more. Instead, the forever well-being of creation and all of the redeemed. Peace is where this all ends. For you, believer, who might wrestle with anxieties in this world, pressures, might have to labor every day with chronic pain, who might have to wrestle with guilt and shame for things that have been done in the past or even in the present? Or you look at the future and you see a world of unknown and that scares you. Peace is where this ends. Peace is where this ends. How do we get to that end? Grace. Grace is how we get there. The means and the application of God's purposes flow from the grace of God. And as we will see in this letter, this gospel, this good news, this gospel grammar is the riches of God's grace. Peace is where we will end. Grace is how we get there. As one pastor friend said, the order is critical. Grace, then peace. Grace first, peace follows. You could say that our outline of the letter follows this grace and peace order. First is the gospel doctrine, and that's our grace. That's God's grace bringing about something we couldn't do on our own. And then there's gospel culture. That is the experience of God's grace in our lives bringing about daily peace that will then eventually end in forever peace. And that the funnel of all of this, the narrow part of the funnel of God's grace into a very unending season of peace is Jesus. Jesus is the narrow part of the funnel. He is by the means by which grace and peace come to us. There is no other means, no other source of God's grace that brings about our peace that's found outside of Jesus. And so Ephesians is the incredible, delighting in such gospel grammar. It is going to declare to us the wonders of our God and his grace. It is going to delight in the sufficiency of Jesus for us. And it's going to show us the way in which we can live tasting peace in our days now. And so I hope that our hearts are eager for that. I hope that this will be a letter that we will be well familiar with. Because we see here at the very beginning, it anticipates our hearts, the gospel grammar of Ephesians reassures our hearts that everything is going to be okay and enables our lives to live for God and his glory. May we find such grace and such peace together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace found in the person and work of Jesus. And as we explore these words and this letter, I, I pray that it would reassure our hearts and that it would indeed enable our lives to live as if you're worth it. 
under a lot of competing things in this world. Many of those things are very good. Some of those things are very hard, and they compete for our attention and our affection. God, I pray that as we go through this letter that we will see how awesome you are, how worthy you are, how worth it it is to know you, love you, and follow you. Would you do that, we pray, and we ask in Christ's name, amen.